0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Luddites are best known for smashing up industrial machinery. But what did these 19th century activists actually want from their destructive actions? And why was their folkloric founder, Ned Ludd, most memorably depicted wearing a polka dot dress. Speaking to Emily Briffitt, Professor Katrina Navakas answers listener questions on the years of civil unrest that saw the rise and fall of the Luddites, a movement made up of textile workers whose livelihoods were under threat from the innovations of the Industrial Revolution. Hi Katrina, thank you so
2: much for joining me today. Hi Emily,
3: it's great to be here.
2: Who were the Luddites.
3: So historically, the Luddites were a movement of workers who broke machinery um, during the Napoleonic Wars, so from about 1811 to about 1816. And they did so in the industrial regions of England.
2: Where does the term Luddite come from? What does it actually mean?
3: So this is a a tale of mystery and folklore, I think, where the term Ludd comes from. So I think there's various opinions, but um, people try and pin it on a guy called Ned Ludd, who existed in the 1770s in Nottinghamshire. And in that first wave of industrial development in the Midlands, this man, Ned Ludd, broke some machinery Um, In the stocking industry, so we think that perhaps people remembered that in folklore and and oral telling, and then they continued to use that word "lud" as a as a symbol, as a as a mythical figure for anyone who breaks machinery. So his story was fictional. He probably existed originally, but he didn't lead a movement in in the 1770s. It only became a movement known as the Luddites in 1811.
2: So, can you just take us right
3: to the beginning?
2: Where and when exactly did it all start?
3: So, it all started in a village called Arnold, which is in Nottinghamshire, and in March 1811. Um, a group of about 60 men that we know of broke some stocking frames. So these are the new machines that were designed to knit stockings. So in the 18th and 19th century, we didn't really have socks, we had stockings and and all people would wear stockings. So it's actually a major industry in the East Midlands. And about 60 stocking frames were broken in March 1811. And that's where the movement started and it spread from nottinghamshire across the east midlands in the early part of 1811 Um, so by november 1811 there were quite um violent outbreaks against this new machinery um in bulwell in nottinghamshire there was a luddite who was shot by the military for attempting to break into the house of a of one of his employees So um, there's um, a growing movement against machinery in 1811, 1812 that starts to become this big movement.
2: What is the historical context behind this? What was the Luddites' primary motivation? This is a question we've had from Neil Eads on
3: Facebook it's all about skill and protecting the skill of the worker. So these are skilled artisans. They are workers in the textile industry. So not just in East Midlands, but also in the industrial north, which also is becoming the heart of the industrial revolution. And these are men who've Developed a skill over many years, have served apprenticeships, learned a particular trade, and are worried about the loss of their skills, of their jobs, um, as manufacturers are starting to introduce new machinery that will make things cheaper, make things quicker, make things on a much larger scale. So, um, the Luddites are demanding, um, mainly the, that their skilled jobs are retained, um, that they're not replaced by machinery, and that they um, their working conditions are respected. They they generally work in small workshops, um, small groups of of quite closely knit um, men generally, and they don't want to be moved to big factories that are operated by steam or um, new um, working conditions that will prevent them from determining when they work and where they work. So it's not just about the machinery itself, it's about the whole way of life of these different communities.
2: And when we're talking about the Luddites, are we talking about a single movement?
3: So... The Luddites are really interesting because they break out in three different regions. So industrialisation in Britain is regional. We have different specialisms in different areas. So one group is in the East Midlands, the stocking knitters who make the stockings for um, most of England. There are woolen workers in West Yorkshire and cotton workers in Southeast Lancashire, northeast Cheshire. So it's very regional. And initially, these groups attack machinery at different times. They're not necessarily directly connected, but they then start writing to each other and reading about each other in the newspapers. So it starts to coalesce around um, this imaginary figure called General Ludd, and they start to see themselves as a much bigger movement than perhaps on the ground they actually are. Um, And that's what's unique and interesting about the Luddites, that they've got this character, General Ludd, who they claim is their leader and unites these different regions, different industries together against the new machinery that's been put in place by their employers.
2: But if these movements were organised around this General Ludd character, do we get a sense of how it was organised, who else was leading and who else was in charge?
3: So it seems that the movement was organised by the workshops and the groups of, of men who'd been working with each other for many years who'd perhaps served apprentices together. So these are men who know each other very well. And so we'd start with small groups of men who'd planned to break machinery or at least planned to threaten their employer against the new plans to introduce the machinery. Um, And then it becomes community supported. You get villages and districts um, realising the impact that these changes would have on the village or the the community economy. So they support these people as well. So um, we start with perhaps like a cell organisation going planning to break into a mach- into a, a factory um but then it would be almost condoned by the local community they'd they'd support it they'd keep those secrets alive um they wouldn't tell the authorities that this is going on but by the time of the big outbreaks we're talking about hundreds or even thousands of people at these events where they watch or at least help these men break machinery or set fire to to factories
2: When we're talking about um, community support, George Hague on Facebook has asked about was it overwhelming support or did some people disagree? Some people think this wasn't right.
3: It's certainly a contentious issue. This is a period when Britain is industrialising Um, the economy is changing. So obviously, manufacturers and the local authorities see the Luddites as a threat, not just to public order, but also to the economy. Um, They want the the economy to industrialise and modernise. Local communities, and we're talking about small villages who mix farming with small-scale weaving or a mixed economy of textile and and agriculture, they feel a bit more threatened by these changes. They don't want to have to move to the cities to work in a big factory. Um, They're supporting their um, children or their fathers in a a household economy. So the textile... Textile industries in the early 19th century are very family-based. These are families working at home or in small workshops, so they they feel that perhaps there is a moral obligation to support the Luddites. Um, They don't want their economy to be changed, but certainly there's a lot of opposition from professionals and the manufacturers and the employers, and especially the government and the local authorities, against these actions. So I'm sure we're
2: going to come back to the support and the response to the action of the Luddites a little bit later. But first, I think we need to chart some of the key events in the timeline, need to talk about what actions the Luddites took. I guess the best place to start with, you've mentioned about breaking machinery. Was this all they did or did they do more?
3: So the main point of Luddism is to stop the machines. So they're biggest actions are physically breaking the machines they notoriously have what's called enoch which is a big hammer to it's a big physical process to break a machine but they do also try and set fire to um, these machines as well and they're very targeted they won't attack machines that have already been introduced that they're happy with using these are the new stocking frames the new power looms um, operated by steam um, the new shearing frames in the woolen industry that um, are designed to, again, um, take away skilled labour. So um, they're very targeted attacks on those. They also um, set fire to buildings. They might try and set fire or throw a brick through the manufacturer's window. They'll certainly start pressure on the manufacturers by perhaps sending an anonymous letter. So we do actually have a lot of evidence about the Luddites and what they wrote and what they thought, because we have um, copies of these letters in the Home Office papers. Once the manufacturer's been threatened by a a pen letter, then he'll perhaps send it on to the Home Secretary to say, look, who's threatening me? Um, So there's lots of threatening letters that say, if you don't, take down your machinery, then we'll come and attack you. So it's not necessarily um, spontaneous action. They're actually planning a lot of these um, events. And I think if um, a manufacturer would have taken down his machinery, then they wouldn't have attacked him just for the sake of it.
2: What kind of language was used in these letters? Presumably they're very threatening, but what kind of things were mentioned.
3: They are very threatening. When I open the boxes of them in the National Archives, you get these big boxes of Home Office papers and you get a chill down your spine when you're reading this stuff. If you imagine exactly what a threatening letter would be like, it is threatening to kill these um, manufacturers at least threatening harm on their families um, if they don't take down the machinery. So it's quite chilling language. Um, some of them are well written. They might have been written by um, an intermediary, someone who knows how to write. Not all the working men um, had good literacy at this time. So some of them are phonetically spelled. They certainly feel that you know that they want to threaten the employer. And they're generally signed by General Ludd or Secretary General Ludd or even his wife, Betsy Ludd. Um, so this imaginary character filters into their tactics. And that's why the authorities and the manufacturers start thinking, oh, maybe there is this one leader, this General Ludd, who is ordering all these workers to send me threatening letters and because that's what's um the signature at the bottom of the of the letters
2: so as as we've sort of spoken about it wasn't just about the machinery but it was also targeting the people involved their families as well
3: Yeah, this is a a really tumultuous time of British history. We're right in the middle of war. Um, The Napoleonic Wars aren't going very well, and there's a big economic depression, which is part of the reason why um, working people are causing pressure on their employers, because they want higher wages, they want um, lower food prices. Food prices are skyrocketing at this time because there's big shortages, there's harvest failures, there's naval blockades stopping food getting into the country. So this is a crisis point in in wartime and in, I think, one of the most serious crisis points in British history, this period of 1811, 1812. No one really can foresee the end of the war at this point. So there is a bigger context to the Luddite Rebellion, if you like, and it's this changing economy. Also, the reason why manufacturers are introducing machinery is not just to speed up their production, but also they're reading new economic theories. They're reading Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, um, which says, you know, leave the prices to the market. So you you don't want people trying to manipulate food prices. You don't want people trying to manipulate the price of wages. Um, Leave it all to the market. And that's the other thing that the Luddites are concerned about is this new laissez-faire capitalism it's moving towards a sort of free trade model um, under adam smith this is what the manufacturers want to institute with the new machinery they want to make things um, cheaper and quicker and more efficient but in doing that the luddites are arguing that um really um creates real problems for the working people and their families. It pulls down wages um, and um, worsens their working conditions.
2: And this uncertainty leads to people wanting to take
3: perhaps more extreme action. Certainly, yes. in in times of extreme economic depression, um people become desperate. Um, and if they can't bargain with their employers, and also another context is that trade unions are illegal at this period. So the government bans them in 1799 and 1800. They're concerned about um, the growing power of trade unions. So this is one of the only tactics that working people can take in a period when um, they can't um, be part of a legal trade union. So, was
2: this a revolutionary moment?
3: The government certainly thought that the Luddites were at the peak of a revolutionary moment. They've already banned trade unions because they're mistrustful of large groups combining. They're seeing these radical movements, reading Thomas Paine, trying to emulate the French. And the crisis point actually happens um, on the 11th of May, 1812. So, Just after all these big attacks in Lancashire and Yorkshire, Spencer Percival, who's just become Prime Minister, gets assassinated in the lobby of the House of Commons and it's immediately blamed on a Luddite. And people think, right, this is the Luddite, attack on the state. It wasn't a Luddite who killed him. Um, there's another story that I'm sure you can find about why he was assassinated, but certainly the knee-jerk reaction is to believe that it was a Luddite who who killed the Prime Minister. So I think that encapsulates how the government saw the Luddite movement. They certainly thought it was revolutionary. I think the Luddites on the ground um, were motivated by lots of different Political persuasions; they weren't necessarily wanting to take over the state at all. They just wanted the machines out of the mills. But certainly, there's a there's a revolutionary atmosphere um, that peaks in that early eighteen twelve. So, can you chart for us some of the most significant events
2: in the timeline of the Luddite movement?
3: So, the start of Luddism in Nottinghamshire is March eighteen eleven. Although it really kicks off in November 1811. There's 70 stocking frames destroyed in Sutton and Ashfield in November 1811. And then it calms down again over Christmas um, and picks up again in Yorkshire. So the East Midlands Luddism declines somewhat and really starts to Amplify in Yorkshire, um, from January 1812. But the high point of Luddism is March, April 1811. And this is a real crisis period, both in the war and in politics and in the economy. So, um, there's some big Luddite attacks on the woolen factories in, in the West Riding of Yorkshire. So Joseph Forster in Horbury in April, um, is attacked by about 300 Luddites. And then, William Cartwright, who's um, a big mill owner in Rawfolds in in West Yorkshire, he defends his mill. It, the Luddites fail to attack it, and then they try and assassinate him a week later. They don't succeed, but two of the Luddites are killed by the military at that point. And then agitation moves over the Pennines to Southeast Lancashire and Northeast Cheshire. There's two major attacks on Burton's power loom steam. Cotton Mill in Middleton near Manchester in April 21st, 22nd of April and those are notorious because it seems from the records that government spies seem to be involved in some sort of as like agent provocateurs trying to catch Luddites by trying to provoke them to attack this mill and then the biggest attack is in West Horton near Bolton on the 24th of April again another cotton power loom mill. Um, and then it peaks at the end of April back in Yorkshire with the, a Luddite attack on William Horsfall's mill in Otty Wells on the 27th of April. Now, William Horsfall um, had boasted that he was going to get the magistrates to um, ride up to their saddles in Luddite blood. He was very opposed to um, the Luddites and what they wanted. What happened on the 28th of April, he was coming back from market in to his mill, which is in the moorland on Crossland Moor, and he was shot and killed um, by a group of Luddites. So that seemed to mark the peak of the Luddite violence, at least his um, assassination.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
4: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. I bet you get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: So you mentioned there the military, you've mentioned almost spies, How did the government react to these protests, this rebellion at a local level?
3: So we've got to remember there's no police force at this time. So um, to enforce any sort of law and order, you've got a system of magistrates um, who were the main local government. On the ground, and they have recourse to military, but they have to read the riot acts. They've got to anticipate disorder. So that's mainly how um, the Luddites are suppressed. Um, But the government does send more military reinforcements to the Midlands and the North. It's estimated about 12,000 troops um, are sent, which is a huge investment given that we're fighting a peninsula war um, in Spain and Portugal at the time. Britain needs as many troops as we can fighting the French, but actually we're fighting a home enemy, if you like, of of the Luddites. So um, the magistrates call on the military to suppress these um, riots and attacks. Some of the manufacturers arm their own workers, so um, the Burtons in In Middleton, they arm about 50 of their own workers when they anticipate that the Luddites are going to come and attack them. So there's a kind of pitched battle between about 300 Luddites at Middleton with about 50 of the workers um, around the mill. And again, this is where a lot of the casualties happen, that people get shot, perhaps not deliberately, but in the melee of, of the disorder that happens. And the government takes luddism very seriously. So um, the manufacturers press Parliament to pass legislation against it. So they, uh, the government passes a frame-breaking act in eight, March 1812, um, which um, makes it a capital offence to break... Um, stocking frames so it only applies to that East Midlands region but certainly that seems to suggest the sort of penalty that Luddites um, are up against. And once Luddites are arrested, they are charged with various offences from breaking the peace to riot, um, and some are executed. So famously, there's almost like a show trial of Luddites at York Castle in January 1813, where some of the most notorious leaders are put on trial. And there's about 60 Luddites tried at that um, show trial and 14 are sentenced to hanging. Others are are transported to Australia. So this is seen as very a serious offence and something that is of national significance.
2: Can we say that the enforcement of the government acts really worked at that local level?
3: I think it's the attitudes of the magistrates that really puts down the disorder. This is again, people are desperate, people are starving, but they're also committed to this cause. So um there is a, a real rift between local government and um working communities who feel that perhaps the Luddites are right. Perhaps the government isn't doing enough for their local economies. And so um there is a a real sense of public order crisis at this point. I do think it's almost a revolutionary situation in 1812. So there's certainly um, a whole panoply of negotiation between magistrates and the military and local manufacturers and local people over what should happen. Um, But certainly the Legislation at the top and these big executions really clamp down on the disorder. And when people realise the the severity of the offences,
2: were the Luddites accused of any crimes that they did not commit, whether by local communities, local magistrates, or perhaps by press or anything like that?
3: The Luddites were accused of all sorts of things at a time when. Um, again there's all sorts of different types of protest and disorder so there were also food riots at this period which precede a lot of these attacks so prices of food are sky high people are protesting in marketplaces and quite often the Luddites would follow on from these protests in the marketplaces and and perhaps march on from a protest a food riot onto the the house of a manufacturer or onto the mill. Um, So there's a whole range of offences and charges that Luddites and people generally got um, charged with. And it might be riots, it might be breaking the peace, it might be all sorts of different offences. So it's not just a simple issue of people getting charged under the the frame-breaking acts. There's all these different offences and all these different ways in which people got involved. So certainly um, women got caught up in the disturbances when they'd perhaps just been rioting in the marketplace over the price of food. But because all these trials were happening about the Luddites, they'd end up being involved with those trials as well. So it's a big crisis of public disorder at this time.
2: Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about some of these other similarly-minded groups at the time.
3: So this is also the time when democratic radicalism is starting. So we've just had the French Revolution from the 1790s. People are starting to read Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, um, forming their own societies, thinking about this idea of democracy which has come over from both America and France. So this is also a time of political radicalism and something again that concerns the government and the local authorities who are... not that keen on working people having the vote um, or any say in political representation. So there are local groups across the industrial north, across Britain as a whole, who are campaigning for the vote. Um They're suppressed and put down again by trials in the 1790s. They are also involved in the war effort. So there's not as much agitation up to 1812 for the vote but certainly that is in the background and that's also what people are organizing it's a big period of a new type of popular politics being developed where ordinary people are starting to think oh actually we can organize in different ways that we hadn't done before And that's partly a result of these new ideas coming from the revolutions. It's also partly because we're becoming more urbanised, more industrialised. There's more people concentrated in urban centres that can meet and organise in different groups. So there's all sorts of um, agitation going on around the context of this machine breaking.
2: And while we're talking about similar groups... Chris Rowe on Twitter has asked about if there were any similar groups to the Luddites in other countries.
3: Machine breaking happens obviously where um, there's new industrial development and Britain is unusual in that, certainly in the Western world, it industrialises first. So we see similar groups happening a bit later in, on the continent. Um, the one I'm quite interested in, um, particularly is in France, in the newly industrialising areas in, in parts of France um, in the 1820s. And we See, French historians have talked about a war of the demoiselles. Um, and one interesting thing about the Luddites, which, um, we haven't discussed yet, is actually, um, that they put on disguises and cl- symbolic clothing, um, to hide themselves. And we see that pattern across, um, different protests, including the war of the demoiselles in France, who were protesting against, um, the forest laws and removal of, of their rights, um, and also uh, around, um, issues similar about wages and work and conditions. And what unites them is that they've also got a mythical figure who cross dresses basically. So the only visual image we have of General Ludd is a cartoon that's produced um, during the disturbances in 1812 of quite a big burly man probably in Lancashire given that he's wearing cotton but he's wearing a cotton dress on top of his normal clothing Um, and it's kind of empire lined spotted printed dress you know a bit Jane Austen style, and it's a very arresting visual image of quite a masculine looking man wearing women's clothing. And there's all sorts of debate about why that is, but it's actually fairly common in any sort of um, customary activity where you have the world turned upside down, this kind of carnival aspect. So we see that across Europe as well. We've seen it in English history, particularly. It's almost like a disguise, but it's almost like a character that isn't your real self, but is a kind of protest character. So one of again, the interesting things about the Luddites is that they're not just like a trade union. They've got this kind of mythical, folklory, um, customary aspect to them, um, which is reflected in other movements. Um Agricultural movements like the Ribbon Men in Ireland, who are again causing a lot of agitation against their conditions and against landlords in Ireland, and these demoiselles in France. So there's a whole network almost of um, these kind of customary figures who are turning the world upside down, as they call it.
2: I'm very intrigued by these ideas of costumes. What sort of thing are we talking about here?
3: So it's really traditional to wear ribbons and rosettes and anything that's symbolic. We only really have it now in in the form of Morris dancers, that kind of, you know, bells and smart white shirts, but also perhaps masks and green men and jack in the green where you dress as a tree. All these kind of things that perhaps seem a bit antiquated to us now um, in the 21st century were quite commonly used particularly in semi-rural semi-agricultural societies and communities at festival times and carnival times but often they represented a carnival where you overturn the rules of that day so for that day only the fool becomes the mayor and the mayor becomes the fool so protests tend to turn to use that as a kind of symbolic way of saying look we're assuming authority now um these are our rules not yours or we don't agree with your what you've done we're asserting community justice and we're showing that by we're wearing a jacket with lots of ribbons on it or we're wearing a mask on our faces or even here's a man dressed as a woman and a woman dressed as a man and it's it's a very traditional customary way of showing um, very visually and also orally there'd be songs there'd be music associated with this that would assert that kind of community identity and we see that in the Luddites as well. Did the Luddites have any particular songs? We've got a whole songbook of songs so again um, this is the wonderful thing about what we think may have been a a mythical movement actually they left us lots of evidence so um, there is a whole book of songs that um, historian Kevin Binfield collected um, which talk about the the victories of General Ludd. There's a lot of sing-along choruses. I'm not going to sing them for you because my voice is not good, but songs are a really good way of ensuring solidarity. Um, they're also a really good way of memorialising events um, and In an oral tradition, people are much more likely to remember stories through singing songs. So this is how the message is also passed on. In an era, again, where ballads are really common, you'll have ballad singers and printed ballads that you can buy and sing along to. So the Luddites um, share in that culture they really um they have many songs about their exploits at rawfolds or in in Nottinghamshire or just this mythical figure of general Ludd um they compare him with, Um, Robin Hood is the obvious kind of mythical figure that they're drawing from. And again, we'll have songs about um, General Ludd and Robin Hood um, asserting, again, this community sense of justice against um, the wrongs of the people who employ them or their landlords. Speaking about
2: this sharing of stories, we've had a question here from
3: George Haig on Facebook. He's asked about their portrayal in the press. The press generally are quite opposed to them. Um, this is a period again where um, most of the press is supportive of the authorities and the government. Um, it's very hard for dissenting voices to have their say. A lot of radical press had been put down or censored in the seventeen nineties. There's lots of legislation passed by Pitt's government against um radical writings. They don't the government doesn't want people writing about democracy. So obviously, most of the newspaper press portrays the Luddites as an unruly mob, as threatening the economy, as um, almost revolutionary in what they're doing. So you're not going to see very favourable portrayals of the Luddites in the, the newspaper press at this time.
2: And Vicky Marjorie on Twitter has asked whether Lord Byron supported them, and if so,
3: why? So famously, Lord Byron's maiden speech in the House of Lords was in february eighteen twelve during the debates on this frame breaking act that would make frame breaking a capital offence. And he he's a bit subtle in what he says. He's not out-and-out pro-Luddite, but he certainly sympathises with the communities that are affected. And he says that the conditions that the Luddites were opposing were the product of the circumstances of the most unparalleled distress. So he seems to offer a sense of empathy and sympathy towards certainly the conditions that the West Riding Clothiers are and the East Midlands um, stocking frame knitters are are under and so later on he does publish poems about General Ludd and portrays General Ludd almost I mean we now have that phrase of Byronic hero this kind of heroic figure but I think at the time he's obviously also very careful at his status in in society he doesn't want to be seen as too pro-Luddite but certainly he's sympathetic towards them
2: so, if we come to the end of the Luddite movement, how long did the protests go on for, and when, when do we see an end?
3: So, the official end really is with those show trials in the beginning of eighteen thirteen. York and um, Lancaster had already had their trials, and with dozens of Luddites executed for for the offences of riot and for breaking machinery. So by the time of 1812, 1813, things are starting to wind down because of the military suppression and the, the trials. There is a revival in 1816 after the end of the Napoleonic War. Um, there's more disturbances in Nottinghamshire, um, which again are put down by the military and by trials and executions. But there's also different types of machine breaking and disturbance, which get classed as Ludism. So 1816 in East Anglia, there were what called the Bread or blood riots where people are shouting bread or blood – that's your choice. I'm. Um, there's debate over whether they can be classed as Luddite because they don't necessarily call themselves Luddite or unite under this imaginary figure of General Ludd, um, but there's certainly continued resistance to new machinery well into the Industrial Revolution and the Agricultural Revolution. Um, so you you can have an official end in 1813 or a longer tail-off a few years after the war.
2: Nicola on Twitter has asked what happened to the leaders of the movement or those who are most strongly visible? So
3: the leaders that the authorities identified and again it's very difficult to know if they were actually the leaders. Most of them were unfortunately arrested and um, tried and executed so there were yeah, 14 hanged at York, there were eight hanged at Lancaster, um, there were several hanged at, at Nottingham Castle, and several others are transported to Australia. We're into that era now where we're moving away from execution, which is why it's interesting that the government decided to execute so many people, because there's a big shift towards transportation as the main punishment. But also by the end of the war, the economy's changing and people are moving on, moving into um, new employment. So we see that legacy of the Luddites kind of dissipate uh, somewhat after the executions and after the, the trials.
2: And what about those people who had been perhaps affected by the actions of the Luddites? How were their livelihoods affected in the long run?
3: So, It costs a lot of money to set up a machine, particularly if if it's steam-powered. So the immediate financial impact of luddism on individual manufacturers was fairly severe. But this is a period when industrialisation really takes off and manufacturing, both in the textile industry and more generally, is booming from the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So the ultimate impact of Luddism on the economy was very little. Manufacturers decided to industrialize and, and mechanize anyway, um, and with newer technology um, happening. So, and we've got to remember that Luddism wasn't a national movement. It's only they only targeted very specific manufacturers in particular areas. So as a whole, luddism didn't have that much of a, an economic effect. Um, it might have had an effect in, on that particular manufacturer, but um, essentially, it wasn't as catastrophic, perhaps, as they'd um, anticipated. Was there any support
2: offered for those people who had been affected on a on an individual level?
3: They would have had their machines insured. There's quite a substantial industrial insurance system going on. So they would have insured them with Sun or one of the other big insurance companies. So I'm sure that they got some of their money back.
2: Agro Biodiverse on Twitter has asked about what were the long-term effects of the Luddite movement on
3: the labour movement and technological development? The long-term effects of and legacy of Luddism, I think they did instil a sense of actually working people have skills. That can't be replaced by machinery. There are later movements that follow Luddism that look back to the movement and think about, um, what they, what their principles were. So the next wave of agitation against machinery after 1816, 1817 happened in the early 1830s in the agricultural sector. So the agricultural sector was mechanizing as well. And the swing riots of the early 1830s happened across most of England. We associate the swing riots with southern arable England where machines are replacing manual labour in, in harvests and gathering the crops. But in fact, we have records of swing incidents across the country where people are looking back at the Luddites and thinking, actually, they had a point about um, machines taking people's labour in in an agricultural setting. Um, so that's the next big wave of agitation around people's working conditions and machine and where else can we perhaps
2: see this Luddite legacy
3: there's certainly a movement that's been growing I guess over the last 20-30 years about craft and um, slow ways of doing things so I think as our own technology um, rapidly seems to take over our working lives I think there is a slow reaction to that in a lot of companies and small businesses are emphasising, oh, this is handmade or this is crafted. And I think that has a kind of long link that we can make between the Luddites um, and their kind of artisan ways of doing things at their own pace and their own time, in their own conditions, to perhaps this movement against automation against ai against computers basically determining how our working conditions are set and so i think there is that element of ludism that that has that longer legacy today with people thinking about skill people thinking about yeah craft and and craftism and slow food and and slow made things that answers a question from Denise Davison on
2: Twitter. So, and as a last question for you, this is from Susie thirteen forty on Twitter. Can we say there are perhaps still Luddites today, or movements that follow their motivations at least?
3: There are neo-Luddites, um, people who actually take on that general Ludd imaginary leader. Um, they tend to be quite fringe movements, um, who were opposed to a lot of technology and technological changes. There had been, um, neo Luddites, for example, a few years ago who opposed genetically modified food, for example. So the Ludd tends to still attract different groups from various political persuasions and different causes. But more generally, I think there is a sort of, again, a sense of people thinking about um, skill and working conditions with, again, environmental protests probably have um a, a sort of link to the Luddites as well with thinking about what's the impact that machines have on our environment and changing people's kind of large-scale farming Um, again seems to threaten people's sort of livelihoods as well. So there's certainly a lot of threads that people can pull from the, the original Luddite threads that they were making on their stocking frames today. That was Katrina Navakas,
0: Professor of History at the University of Hertfordshire. You can hear some of the songs that Katrina discussed in this episode by heading over to BBC Sounds and searching for The Luddite Lament. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.